I am Dr. Rapp, and this is Appreciating Shakespeare, Series 1, Chapter 10, Categories of Plays, Session 2, Histories, Satire, and Romance. In Shakespeare's time, any play that told a story might be called a history. But the editors of the first folio specifically classified as histories Shakespeare's ten English history plays. All of them grow out of the chronicle play form, in which a slice of history is told without any necessarily tragic or moral agenda. Some of Shakespeare's histories are essentially chronicles, like the three Henry VI plays and King John. Some, like Henry V and Henry VIII, can also be described as pageants, which I'll discuss in a moment. And some, like Richard II and Richard III, are histories that are also tragedies, specifically called so on their title pages. As with tragedy and comedy, here too the fluidity of the dramatic forms of the age made it possible for Shakespeare to treat those forms as malleable clay, depending partly on what the particular story seemed to require, and partly on the topical issues of Shakespeare's own time. Shakespeare's English history plays are largely built on the writings of two 16th-century English historians, Edward Hall, circa 1498 to 1547, and Raphael Hollinshed, circa 1529 to 1580. It is illuminating to study the ways in which Shakespeare accurately preserved facts, orders of events, and characters he found in the Chronicles, and the ways in which he modified and altered them to serve his dramatic and thematic purposes. Once again, Elizabethan reverence for authority and freedom of artistic invention went hand in hand, harmonized by Shakespeare's remarkable imagination. Eight of the English histories that Shakespeare wrote form two tetralogies, from the Greek tetra, meaning four. That is, two sets of four plays each that trace English history from what Shakespeare, in keeping with established Tudor opinion, saw as the tragic deposing of the rightful but bad King Richard II. The series brings the audience through the Wars of the Roses to the final defeat of the scourge Richard III and the establishment of the House of Tudor by Henry VII. The Wars of the Roses were called so because each of the major warring houses had a rose as its symbol, white for the House of York and red for the House of Lancaster. The plays were wildly successful by Elizabethan standards, not least because the question of a successor to the long-reigning Elizabeth I, Henry VII's granddaughter, was a live issue, and the threat of a new round of civil wars was much feared. To avoid confusion, keep in mind that the order of composition is not the order of historical events. The tetralogy that Shakespeare wrote first, early in his career, depicted events later in English history than the tetralogy he wrote later at the height of his powers. The historical order of kings in the two tetralogies was this, Richard II, Henry IV, Henry V, Henry VI, Edward IV, Edward V, Richard III, Henry VII. 
The order in which the plays were written was as follows. The tetralogy written first, but covering a later period in time, is made up of Henry VI, Part One, Henry VI, Part Two, Henry VI, Part Three, and Richard III. The tetralogy written later, but covering an earlier period in time, is made up of Richard II, Henry IV, Part One, Henry IV, Part Two, and Henry V. One particular kind of history play is called a pageant. The word pageant is rooted in the Latin pagina, the page or leaf of a book, from the Latin pango, pangere, to fix or fasten, and later to write or to compose. Pageant has two early meanings in English. I'll quote from the Oxford English Dictionary under the noun. Sense one, a scene displayed on a stage, specifically one scene or act of a medieval mystery play. And sense two, a stage on which a scene is exhibited or acted, especially the movable structure or carriage consisting of stage and stage machinery used in the open-air performances of the mystery plays. The mystery plays were dramatized stories from the Bible, usually performed in groups called cycles, in which each guild of craftsmen would be responsible for performing a particular story connected with its craft. The building of Noah's Ark would have been performed by the Carpenters' Guild, and the angel's appearance to the shepherds to announce Christ's birth would have been performed by the Shepherds' Guild, and so on. The performances took place in public places, often in yards, where the audiences remained where they were, and the performers for each play acted on a platform built upon a wagon, which would be drawn into the yard for the performance of that play, and then drawn out again. The scene itself and the wagon platform on which it was performed each came to be known as a pageant. In the time of Shakespeare, the term pageant was used for shows of various degrees of elaboration, tableaus, allegorical mini-dramas, full-scale poetic productions with allegorical figures, nymphs, fairies, fireworks, waterworks, etc. Some such pageants were performed for the monarch on the occasion of a progress, that is, the slow midsummer processions of the entire court to visit the country houses of the nobility. And others were written and produced in London for special public occasions. As Shakespeare scholar F. E. Halliday notes, some of the ablest poets and dramatists were employed in devising these city pageants, Peel, Monday, Decker, Johnson, and Middleton. Such productions were generally one-time showy entertainments. As applied to plays of Shakespeare, the term pageant, though it derives from the older usage implying a series of related scenes, more than a coherent and unified drama, refers to an original hybrid of Shakespeare's own. As we've seen, Shakespeare often engages in, and is probably responsible for, such hybrids, which are later accepted by others as formal categories. He could not help bringing his powerful, unifying imagination even to such works as he would think of as pageants. The result is illustrated by the two plays of Shakespeare, and one probably by Shakespeare, that we might call pageants, 
so long as we remember that they are much more than mere successions of set pieces or chronicle scenes. They are Edward III, Henry V, and Henry VIII. I will discuss Edward III in the podcast of Chapter 13 on Shakespeare's collaborations. Henry V gives us Shakespeare's great and triumphant vision of a hero king, the brilliant though short-lived unifier of the principles of right and merit that were split apart in the person of the deposed Richard II. Henry VIII is an earnest evocation in terms of history of the theme of hope for the harmonious reconciliation of opposing parties and the atonement for evil within the soul, a theme characteristic of the four late Shakespeare plays called Romances. To those romances we now turn. Four late plays by Shakespeare come under the category of romance. They are sometimes also called tragic comedies, or late comedies, or late romances. These are the last plays Shakespeare wrote before retiring to Stratford, namely Pericles, Cymbeline, The Winter's Tale, and The Tempest. To these we may add The Two Noble Kinsmen, on which Shakespeare collaborated with John Fletcher, as I'll discuss in the podcast of Series 1, Chapter 13, on collaborations. That play was written in 1613, the same year as Henry VIII. In fact, based on their structure, Pericles, Cymbeline, The Winter's Tale, and The Tempest may all be properly categorized as comedies, which, in terms of their underlying forms, are not so very different from Shakespeare's earlier comedies. The various names assigned to this group of plays, romance, tragicomedy, late comedy, are attempts to account for their unusual tone and atmosphere. They are all somehow magical, mystical, and healing. Why are they called romances? Are they romantic? What we call romantic love plays a part in each of these plays, but that's not why they are called romances. They are called romances because of the magical, unlooked-for, surprise redemptions that these four last plays depict, though many of Shakespeare's earlier comedies have similar sorts of surprise reunions and unlooked-for happy endings. The term romance comes from the name for medieval tales based on legend, chivalric love, adventure, or the supernatural, and for narratives set in remote times and places with imaginary characters engaged in adventures sometimes involving the mysterious. Why are these plays called tragicomedies? The term tragicomedy is applied because not just the threat of death, as in all but two of Shakespeare's earlier comedies, but actual deaths happen in them. The use of the various terms for these four plays suggests that we must be careful about forcing Shakespeare's work too strictly into meeting our expectations of the pre-existing categories of drama. He was aware of those forms and depended on them, but as we have seen, he also often pushed against their boundaries to powerful effect. Are the romances believable? Of course not. But then neither are many of the earlier comedies and many parts of the tragedies. But we are meant to suspend our disbelief. I will discuss 
the willing suspension of disbelief, in the first podcast session of Chapter 15 on the Nature of Art. We must suspend our disbelief in apparent impossibilities in order to be able to appreciate the deeper and otherwise invisible meanings they are meant to convey, just as we believe while watching a Superman movie that Superman can fly, or while watching Star Wars that there is life on other planets, or while watching Harry Potter that magic spells work. What is made believable in these plays is the healing spiritual truth of the nature of man's life in the world, of which these plays give us irresistible and uplifting experience. The next category we'll look at is the satire. Most editors do not recognize satire as a distinct category in Shakespeare's toolbox of dramatic forms, but they should. There are many satiric elements in all Shakespeare's plays, but one play, namely Troilus and Cressida, can be properly thought of only as a satire, and cannot fit comfortably into any other category, though many critics have labored to categorize it otherwise, seeing in it elements of comedy, tragedy, and chronicle. The word satire is derived from the Latin satura, meaning full, in the phrase lanx satura, meaning a full dish, a dish filled with all kinds of fruit or food. The term was then applied, as the Oxford English Dictionary tells us, to a discursive composition in verse treating of a variety of subjects, and was later identified by confusion with the Greek word satyr, meaning a minor divinity, half man and half goat, because of the comical ancient Greek satyr plays, which took their name from the satyr characters that formed their choruses. The combination word came to describe a play or other composition in which the follies of men are ridiculed, sometimes comically, sometimes savagely. As it did so often, Shakespeare's imagination here again transforms a conventional form into a great and previously unknown phenomenon. His one satire, which is not a tragedy, though there is violent death on stage, and not a comedy, because there is no happy ending, and not a history, though it does tell part of the ancient history of Troy, holds up for ridicule not one or a few men guilty of common human foibles, but an entire age of the world. Shakespeare is depicting what it looks like for a whole civilization to collapse through its own moral and spiritual blindness, which the play fiercely ridicules so that we might recognize our own potential for such folly and thereby avoid bringing a similar disaster upon ourselves. Finally, we must discuss a false category of Shakespeare's plays namely, the problem play. For four of Shakespeare's plays, the late 19th century coined and the 20th century enshrined the category of problem play. Its definition and the list of plays to be included in it have always been matters of debate. Most commonly, the term was used to refer to plays that the critics felt to be problematic in structure or content. That is, not that the play depicted a character with a problem to be solved, but that the play itself was an insoluble problem for critics, though most did not want to go so far as to call the play's failures. 
The four plays first put into this category by F.S. Boaz are Measure for Measure, All's Well That Ends Well, Troilus and Cressida, and Hamlet. As you will hear in the discussion of the individual plays in Series 2 of these podcasts, this category is an invention of critics who do not understand or refuse to adopt the premises of Shakespeare's drama. The critics experience problems with these plays because they are asking them the wrong questions, questions irrelevant in the world of Shakespeare's dramatic art. By doing so, critics are distracted from what Shakespeare has actually given us in these plays. It is as if one were to reject the premises of an argument and then become surprised and even offended that its conclusions make no sense or as if one were to criticize a child for enjoying a swing in the park on the grounds that the child could get a lot farther on a skateboard. In fact, so far from being problems in their execution, measure for measure, though an ordinary Christian story, as the poet Philip Thompson called it, is one of Shakespeare's greatest and most coherent plays. All's well that ends well, too, though its language is challengingly dense, tells a perfectly standard Shakespearean story. Troilus and Cressida, as I've said, makes coherent sense if seen as a satire about a collapsing civilization. The problem of it arises only from trying to shoehorn it into another category of drama. And Hamlet is only a problem for those who cannot accept what Shakespeare and his audience believed and assumed, and what the play explicitly tells us, about God, death, judgment, heaven and hell, and providence. Rather than adopting this false category, the student of Shakespeare is invited to recognize that Shakespeare's greatness transcends the limited horizons of a great number of modern critics. Unlike theirs, Shakespeare's imagination was quite at home in both respecting the box and thinking outside it. That is because when Shakespeare went outside the box, he was not going out into an irrational universe of emotional and existential chaos. For all the doubts and questioning of his age, and for all the playful experimentation of his extravagant imagination, the universe of reality for Shakespeare remained morally and spiritually intact. I am Dr. Rapp, and this is appreciating Shakespeare.